We're uh, obviously continuing on in Numbers, and I put up the, the map every time, just so you know, if you need a copy, we always have extras, so we, can, we have some here if you need a copy. We can make one if we run out. But I wanted us just to see briefly where we are. And so we've finished Mount Sinai, and we're entering now the, these travel segments. And you kind of see them. It's not a perfect break in numbers, but you'll see three geographical locations, and you're going to see travel or movement to these places as they, they engage in what they're doing. And, and we're going to be covering this first travel uh, segment and so just to kind of see what's happening, I say let the journey begin. The journey started, but of course we're, we're now launching in. We're leaving Mount Sinai. Uh, Israel received the law there. Uh, they've been counted. They've been organized. Uh, they've worked through a checklist on purity and understanding that the holy God is in their camp. They've set aside the Levites per God's command. Uh, they've received instructions on how any Israelite can be set apart or holy to God. That's the Nazarite vow. Critical to the transition as we're coming out, you start noticing that they're going to celebrate that second Passover, but this would be the first one outside of Egypt. This is the first one that's going to be the first of generations of Passovers that they're going to celebrate, and they're prepared for the journey to the promised land. So this is not, we're not wandering yet. We're moving to the wilderness of Paran, and really what we're going to be doing, and I'll mention it, we're going to get in, end up at Kadesh Barnea at the south portion of Canaan, and this is going to be our entry point. And so we're moving, and so what we have in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, so to put this in perspective, 10 chapters, lots of conversation, we're 20 days after God commanded Moses to count the people. Numbers 1, 2, I think it is, he says on the second year, second month, first day, get a count. We move through a lot of stuff, a lot of going back in time and looking what's happening, explaining what's taking place, preparing for journeys, all the stuff. But in your mind, you know, the count, the organization, and those components are all happening in that early part of the month. We're celebrating the Passover, and now on that 20th day of the month, we are ready to head out. That's basically what they're, they're looking at. This is chapter 10, 11 through 36, and this is going to kind of work us through. What's, I went too far. I seem to struggle with that. There we go. Um, heading out, and what we're going to see is just some practical things, and we're going to be reminded of divine involvement. So just to give a little overview, the people are organized for the march. They're heading out as they would have camped. So let me remind you of this, and I can't memorize them, but uh, Judah leads the way, followed by the two tribes that are with him. I'm going to use the word him because it's Judah. So if you remember the way they camp, they're camping north, south, east, west, around the tabernacle in like a cross format, three tribes together. On the picture, we draw them in nice, neat squares. There's no way that two million people stay in nice, neat squares, but in essence, Judah is going to be in the prime camping location. Judah is always going to lead with the other two. I think it's Issachar and Zebulon go with Judah. So just like they camp, just like they've been instructed, we see them head out. Judah leads the way. Then after Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon, the group that follows are the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari. And these are Levites, and they're the ones that carry the tabernacle structure. 
So they're the ones that got the wagons and they got the oxen because they're carrying the heavy things of the tabernacle. And, and you're going to see some practicality. You always see, uh, not that God has to be practical. He's God and his mind is far, far above ours. But it's neat to see it. Judah and three tribes head out. Then the Levites that carry the poles, the, t- the, the skins, the bulky structure, they follow after those three tribes. And then the next three tribes head out, led by Reuben. Now after Reuben and company go, then the Kohathites set out with all the holy things of the tabernacle. And what we're seeing is a little common sense. Two million people don't leave at the same time, nor do they arrive at the same time. This journey that they're taking is a three-day journey. In other words, if one person was walking across this journey, it would take them three days. Two million people don't move at the pace of one person. And so as you watch this, and I don't know if you've ever been to a big sporting event. Anyone been to a big sporting event? And then you're watching the game, and it's so exciting. And then the game's over, and then you're like, all these people leave out of the same parking lot as me. And I, we, would just, we took the kids just this late summer. We took them to see a Dude Perfect concert. These are guys that do ridiculous things. Uh, my kids loved it. I had a pounding headache that multiple Tylenol would not take away. And so we get into the parking garage after the event, and it's just, we're on the seventh floor of a parking garage, and I put my car in reverse. Well, actually, yeah, I had to, I had to pull in. I rarely pull in. I hate pulling in. I want to back in, but I was going to have to back up, and I looked up, and it's just all the way up and all the way down, and I was hungry, and I thought, oh, there's a Shake Shack within a mile. Um, so in Baltimore, I made the uh, worst decision of my life and walked to Shake Shack, uh, I was like, well, I've sacrificed my kids on the altar of Baltimore. That definitely feels like the murder capital of Maryland and when you're walking at night. But I made it to Shake Shack. Burger was worth it. And then got our way back. But that's what happens, right? When we leave an event, it's just poof, chaos. And that's what, 10,000 people? Well, imagine if there's no order to 2 million people leaving. So when they're leaving, understand that by the time the last tribe is leaving, the next one's probably starting to already think about camping because it's just a way it's going to work. So God in his wisdom and I think common sense, you send out the guys with the tabernacle, three tribes in. You wait three more tribes and then you send the guys with the altar and the holy things. So by the time they get to where they're stopping and setting the tabernacle up, well, they're ready to... uh, Put the holy things in. And so you see how it works. And then you move on from there, and you're going to have the tribes of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. And just keep in mind, those are the sons of Rachel. And then the final group of three led by the tribe of Dan. That is chapter 10. They head out. Now, within chapter 10, there's a few other components, beginning with what I call the practical consideration. And that's verses 29 through 32. So if you uh, have your Bible's numbers, chapter 10, Verse 29 through 32, this is where Moses petitions, and a lot of them, there's a lot of discussion back and forth. So some people are going to say it's Moses' father-in-law. Some people are going to call it his brother-in-law. I think it's more like his brother-in-law. He's had a lot of conversations with his father-in-law. So, and Moses, it says, said unto Hobab, the son of Raguel the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law. And a lot of people think Raguel the Midianite is Moses' father-in-law. We are journeying unto the place of which the Lord said, I will give it you. Come thou with us, and we will do thee good. For the Lord has spoken good concerning Israel. 
And he said unto him, I will not go, but I will depart to my own, own land and to my kindred. And he said, Leave us not, I pray thee, for as much as thou knowest how we are to encamp in the wilderness, and thou mayest be to us instead of eyes. In other words, you can be very helpful to us. You're going to be a practical help. You're going to explain the desert that you know and how we can set up camp and what we can do. And then he continues on, And it shall be, if thou go with us, yea, it shall be that what goodness the Lord shall do unto us, the same will we do unto thee. And so Moses is asking his brother-in-law or father-in-law, depending how you uh, look at those names in the breakdown, to stay with them and help them in camping and finding water. And this individual would have been an asset to the whole nation. And Moses desires that he remain and participate in the blessings of the nation. And interestingly enough, we don't see Hobab's answer or his response here, but we know he helped as his descendants show up in Judges called the Kenites. And if you remember, there's a pretty famous lady married to a Kenite who put a stake through a guy's head, which is be jail. So we know he ends up going. We know they end up finding a place in Israel. But I want us to see something about this practical consideration because it's not going to take anything away from divine involvement, but I think there's some wisdom here connecting with someone that could help Israel camp and function in the desert. And I, and I put a note, using the tools God has provided, pursuing them so that God's work can be best accomplished. And the opposite often transpires, though, floundering along and spiritualizing the stupidity. And I, I mention that because I've been all over the world on mission work, and I've bumped into people and I watch them spiritualize a decision, and I'm like, why aren't you talking to the local here? Why aren't you getting to know the clearing agent? Why aren't you functioning in this society? Oh, no, you know, uh, God will send a miracle this way. And God's looking down saying, why don't you take some practical consideration and, and make a step forward? Uh, I, I look at it, and I see it. I've seen it in mission work. I've seen it in ministry work. Uh, to be honest, I see it in regular life decisions. I watch some people come and make decisions that they have spiritualized. Well, I have been, I prayed about this a lot, so I'm just going to do this. I'm like, oh, you didn't ask anyone's counsel on this. You, you missed Proverbs, which says there's value in a multitude of counselors. You just have gone off and made a call here. And, and people love to spiritualize or over-spiritualize. And I mention that because it's interesting that in Numbers, where we are fixating on God and His holy presence and His leading and His direction, that we have a chunk of verses that are very, very practical. Why don't you help us know where we should camp in the desert because you know the desert. And I just want to mention God has given us an abundance of practical helps and we, when it suits our purpose, will ignore them and use spirituality as the excuse for not using them. And I'm not a pragmatic, and God's not a, a preacher of pragmaticism, like, well, if it makes sense to do it, then do it that way. But I am saying God put in some interesting verses about an interesting group of people that, by the way, the Midianites end up being horrific in trying to make Israel stumble in immorality and, and things like that. But here, this certain group that he's related to, he knows they're helpful. And so, I just throw that out as just a, a, a thought, practical help, practical consideration, uh, common sense. God hasn't asked that to be checked at the door. It doesn't mean common sense rules. 
And that's what I want us to see now because practical help doesn't undermine God's leadership and guidance. So after this petition and acquisition of practical help, Moses is inspired to remind us of divine involvement. Let's look at verse 33 now. And they, depart, they departed from the mount of the Lord three days' journey. That's just telling you that it takes one person three days to get there. It doesn't mean it took Israel three days to get there. It took them longer than that. Again, I think I've shared that, two million verses one and the, and the movement. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them in the three days' journey. So we just learned something, right? The Kohathites who typically follow six tribes in, one of the components leads out ahead of Judah. And it goes to search out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was upon them by day when they went out of the camp. And it came to pass when the ark set forward that Moses said, Rise up, Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered, and let them that hate thee flee before thee. And when it rested, in other words, where it was camping, he said, Return, O Lord, unto the many thousands of Israel. And so we're reminded of divine involvement, and it was the Ark of the Covenant that went before them, representing God. I want you to understand that. Do you remember when we were talking about Eli and Samuel? And they come back to Shiloh, and they grab the ark. Why did they do that? Because we're going to bring God into the battle, right? And what they were doing was using an omen. They're using an object that God had not, in that moment, said, you can grab me and move me where you want me to. And so Israel had lost sight of who God was because they thought they could force God to join their battle. But here in Numbers, and where would they get this idea from? It's because in Numbers, in the journey through the desert, God put his presence there. This, this signified who, God moving with them. They see it in the cloud. They see the Ark of the Covenant. So when it left, there's Moses saying, Rise up, Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered, and let them that hate thee flee before thee. And when it comes, he says, Return, O Lord, unto the many thousands of Israel. The involvement, though, of the Lord was kept fresh. It was in front of them. Why does Moses come up with a song? Because that's how it would have come out. Why, why, why sing this song? What's, what's the point? Is it just that Moses likes to sing while he walks? It unifies, right? What else does it do? What is he doing when he says this? He's singing this. What does it remind him? Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. And when, when the ark comes back, it says, Return, O Lord, to the thousands of Israel. What is he constantly bringing to mind to the people? Who leads them? Presence of God. God is leading. He's keeping fresh the involvement of the Lord, and it was the point of praise and adoration. Now, here's a question that popped in my mind. Would the same be said of us? Do we even remotely think to sing, rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and return, O Lord, to the thousands of Israel. And I'm not saying we're singing in the, that exact same context, but it's the same set of us. Do we keep fresh in our mind that God leads, that he is involved, that we follow him? And oftentimes I think we sadly want to say, He's our leader, set him aside and make sure we shine. And what Moses was doing, and notice this because he's about to get hammered when it comes to people complaining and attacking him. We end with his brother and sister trying to undermine his leadership. But notice 
who's not emphasizing themselves here? Who is he emphasizing? God. He's the guy that was practical. Hey, I'd love to have a guy help us with this camping thing. Don't eat that cactus. Eat this one. I don't, I don't know exactly what's going on. Don't camp there. That's where the scorpions sleep. All these things that are practical. And, but we end the chapter with this idea that don't lose sight of who, are, who leads us, who guides us, who's involved with us, whose presence is among us. As we head out, we don't sacrifice everything we learned in the camp. So Israel embarks on this three-day journey from Mount Sinai to the wilderness of Paran, which is Kadesh Barnea. This is the southern point of the land of Canaan, the promised land. There are three days, one person traveling, from being ready to enter the promised land. And just wrap your mind around that. It's been one year, you're about to march, and you are three days walk, again, more for them, but in your mind, this is, this is, you're there. You're right at the cusp of entering in. This is what you've been working for. This is what you've been sacrificing for. This is the promise of God being fulfilled. And what we find, though, is not peace and tranquility. It's not a focus group on one goal. We find instead that we run into, and, and you saw it there, unwise complaints. One commentator puts them in three complaints. I think it's more four because under the meat complaint is Moses' complaint because he complains to God about them and about God and about the situation. And so it depends how you like to do it. It builds on threes, though. So in the Hebrew literature and a lot of literature of the day, the idea of threes, this, this rotating three is, is a big part of it. So Moses' complaint is tucked underneath the people's complaint. So I want us to look at 11 and 12 and what we, what we encounter here. Let me just walk you through these three points. Um, you're going to encounter some general grumbling. That's the first part of 11. Scripture doesn't even specify what it is. God, in response to that grumbling, sends fire to burn in the outermost portion of the camp. Now, based on the translation, if you're reading um, from the KJV, they do add these words, them that were, and, and so it gives you the impression that people died. People did not die. The Hebrew does not say this. So I'm going to read one. This is the general complaint. We start out, And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, and the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burnt among them and consumed. And if you read from this version, them that were actually are not Hebrew words at all. The italicized means it's added for, for flow. So you should read it, burnt among them and consumed in the uttermost parts of the camp. And that's actually what the Hebrew says. In other words, God sent fire and he burnt bushes and he burnt tents and he burnt things that were, were combustible. It was obvious that he's displeased, but he didn't kill. No one died in this one. This is not burning people. And so the people cry out to Moses and Moses then prays for them. What's followed really quickly after general complaining is what I like to call the meat complaint. Whining for meat. And I want us to pick up on something. This is a very, this one here for Israel has a, has a massive implication because when they whine for meat, they're spurning what God has given them. They're saying to God, your provision isn't enough. And that prompts Moses to complain, tucked in the middle of that complaint, followed then by the leadership complaint, which is Miriam and Aaron. And I want you to hear the order of those words, Miriam and Aaron, because the order is important, which we'll see. She's the leader on this one, complaining against Moses. 
And I want you to see a, a tendency of Israel. Israel has a tendency to complain and God has to continually teach them the rebellion and rejection that is resident in complaints. And I hope you can see where I'm jumping later on. And I hope we can be confronted with this. When you're complaining, rebellion and rejection is resonant in your complaints. When you go to God and you say, Ooh, to God, why this? Why this? Why is my life not functioning the way I want? Why didn't this turn out this way? Why didn't the guy that we voted for get elected? Why didn't this person get this win? Why did this person have this accident? Why did my family member get cancer? When we complain to God, I want us to learn something. Resident in that complaint, and this one's tough, is rebellion and rejection. Rejection of what God has done. Rebellion against what God is doing. Now, we're going to begin with that general complaint, and, and it's verse 1 through 3. The, the fire happens on the outskirts of, of, of the camp. So imagine people sprawled all the way out, and there's some type of complaint going on, and God is starting to burn things. Now, if you're walking around and see something spontaneously combust, does that create a li little bit of fear in you? It does not me. I remember visiting a client for, uh, this is a, a greenhouse, it's in Oklahoma, and uh, so I'm going to these people. They're one a huge grower. They're not in business anymore just to show they did things wrong. But um, going up there, and I look out their office, and I see a mountain of their soil. And I use quotes because it was not soil or soilless media. It was green pine bark piled about, I don't know, what, eight stories high? Um, and I'm watching fires just light up all over it. And I'm looking out, and... And they're complaining to me because we sell them plants and so peony roots. They're like, your peony roots aren't growing. And I look out the window, I'm like, your soil's on fire. Nothing grows in fire. Like, oh, it happens all the time. We just constantly put it out. They had a water wagon out there putting out fire. Now, if you know wood and trees and things like that, as something matures, as green wood is compressed, it, it generates or puts off heat. You have enough of it and it combusts. And when you pile it high in 900-degree weather in Oklahoma on the top of a hill, and they're not even blinking an eye, and I'm getting nervous. I'm like, well, that's, that's a, that could be a big fire. That's, that's a lot of wood right there. If it all keeps going, this is a bad situation. How fast can you get off this little mountain knoll here in, in Oklahoma? So think about what happens. They complain, and God sends what I call as a very general warning. Things are burning that aren't supposed to start burning. And it gets their attention. Now, what's missed is that they go right from here to the next one and recognize what God is doing. It's a general complaint, but it's also a general warning from God. Things are lighting on fire. And they don't connect this idea of complaining with rebellion and I put as a thought question, do we overlook the general warnings and persist to get the specific punishment? The net result of this meat complaint is a lot of people die, a host of them, and they're buried there in the desert. Our numbers start decreasing with meat complaint. But God has responded to the general complaint with a very general warning. No loss of life, an obvious displeasure with what's taking place, but Israel doesn't learn from that. And I want to put a note in our mind as his church today, not, we've not replaced Israel. 
Um, that would be, uh, in my opinion, a misinterpretation of Scripture. But, but we understand as we're looking at Israel and we're seeing their mistakes and what they're doing, and now we're His church, and we're here in the age of grace, but do we miss the general warnings that God gives us? Are we just blazing past what's there? They don't, and then due to the influence of what is called a mixed multitude, or as some translations say, the rabble, which is non-Israelites that left Egypt with them, they decide to complain about food. And so we move from a general complaint to a meat complaint. What is the complaint in summary? We want meat. Now, I want us to understand something. Israel is not a meat-eating society. We in our mind are like, well, yeah, I mean, I want steak. I want meat every night. Who here eats meat every day? Three of you? How many are liars? Everyone raise your hand because that's where you're at right now. We're used to eating meat. We're a meat-eating society. I eat meat tonight. I, Kelvin came in, was getting some cheesecake, and there was leftover pulled pork, and I said, Kelvin, I think you're going to want the pork first. And he ate it, man, right there, gobbled it up, and a cheesecake. We eat meat. Israel doesn't. When they eat meat, if you remember from Leviticus, they eat meat when they offered a burnt offering, not really a burnt offering, but some of the other sacrifices. Then they would have a meal, and that's when they ate meat. Other than that, they typically do not eat meat. So now you have a society that's saying, I want meat. Egypt had better food. Now, think about this. Three days' journey from entering the promised land. You're on a trip. You're moving through the wilderness where there's nothing. Now we want meat. We want to be like Egypt. We're missing what we're doing here. And then they say something interesting. We're sick of this manna. And what are they doing? They're complaining about what God had provided. Look at 11. I'm going to read 4 through 6. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a-lusting. It's a great way to see it. They just decided we need something else. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks, not interesting, and the onions and the garlic, but now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all besides this manna before our eyes. And then we get a description of what the manna is. And I want us to understand what they're saying here in essence. This is what Israel's saying in this moment. God is not enough. His provision, His care, His guidance, His plan, His purpose are not sufficient. What have they missed? <coughs> what have they missed? What are things that they have missed being Israel and getting manna every morning that they're complaining about? What is the opposite of eating manna? Not eating. So what are they not doing? They're not starving. Their food is delivered to wherever they are on the ground. Now, you got a whole critical thinking that wants to try to explain it with some tree that bleeds out, but the fact is they didn't have bleeding in a tree to feed people, and the trees don't walk with Israel anyway. And if they did, that would be a miracle. So no matter what, it's a miracle. Now, they're not starving. They're on a journey with food delivered. Just think about some other ways they're talking about. What else are they not? What, in Egypt, what were they? Slaves. You're not enslaved. You're moving to a land that God has promised to you. Do you see the ridiculous nature of the complaint? We're sick of manna. I'm sick of being fed without doing anything for it. 
I'm tired of you taking care of me. I'm not starving, so now I can start whining. And now I want God to send me some variety. And I put as a thought question, in what ways have you said what God has given is not enough? And in what ways have you missed what you have in him? Now let me be more general so we can feel comfortable to speak up. Because everyone put their head down when I said that. Um, how has the church today done this? What is the church today? How, how, are we, how do we do this? What are some things that we do, or as a church as a whole do, or the Western church as a whole? How do we treat God as not enough? Yeah, we got, we got to make this appealing. You got to entertain me. Man, that church better have that program and this program and that other program. Otherwise, it's not good enough. God had better give me success in my career. I had better have healthy children. I definitely don't want to bury any of them, and I don't. I don't think anyone does. But you recognize that we will go to God and say you're not enough, and that's exactly what they're saying. I want meat. Man is not enough. I'm on a trip. God's kept me from starving. He's rescued me out of Egypt. Now remember, we, we feel like there's distance. This is one year. A year ago, you were making bricks for a tyrant. And you weren't eating cucumbers, melons, and leeks, and all the fish you wanted like you were on vacation. But that's how you're picturing slavery. And how many Christians paint the world the same way? Oh, man. Well, you want to worship every Sunday? I shouldn't participate in X, Y, Z. I mean, I'm here on earth. I should have some fun with it. Oh, really? God's not enough? His salvation's not sufficient? Because that's what we're saying when we do this. That's what they said. Not enough. God's not enough. And so we need to be confronted with what we've become comfortable saying to God. I, I, I make this joke sometimes, and someone says, who, who do we bill? And I say, well, Bill Jesus, he only saved your soul. How many times do we sit complaining about this life and forgetting that he's given us the next? And we didn't have the next. Adam and Eve took care of that, and then our own sin on top of it. But he's bought us the next life, and we say to God, yeah, but that's not enough. That's not sufficient. You still owe me more. Give me what I want. And so the Lord is obviously not pleased uh, in describing his anger. How does Scripture do it? Uh, it was kindled greatly is one of the ways, or blazed hotly. And why does Scripture do that? Because God doesn't lose his temper. <coughs> God doesn't have a temper. When God is angry, he is righteously angry. He is he has holy anger. Why use these adjectives? It's trying to help us comprehend the emotion that's there. In other words... This is a massive, rebellious move. This is a massive saying to God, you are not sufficient. This was your warning. This is your detrimental moment. And what happens is, is this frustrates Moses. And he complains about what God has given him to do. So we got the people complaining about what God's given them. And then we have Moses complaining about what God has given him to do. Look at verse 11. And Moses said unto the Lord, Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant, and wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight? Thou layest the burden of all this people upon me. Before that it said, Moses also was displeased. And what's interesting, it's hard to know, was he displeased at God? Or was he displeased at the people? Because he complains about the people, but he's complaining to God. 
And so you see this displeasure or complaint weave out. And then he talks about, did I conceive all these people? In other words, he says to God, these aren't my people. They're your people. You take care of them. He goes on, 13. He says, when should I have flesh to give unto all this people? For they weep unto me, saying, give us flesh that we may eat. I'm not able to bear all this people alone, because it's too heavy for me. And if thou deal thus with me, kill me, I pray thee, out of hand. If I have found favor in thy sight, let me not see my wretchedness. Moses is wallowing in self-pity here. But I want you to recognize how would it feel to have two million people asking you for meat? I'm not saying everyone complained. I'm just, okay, take a percentage. We want meat. Oh, that's a good idea. We want meat too. Where's the meat? Get the meat. We want meat. After a while, Moses is thinking, I got I to gotta take a three-day journey without you guys. I'm going to head on out. I'll see you in Kadesh Barnea if you make it there. So he's, he's frustrated. And what's interesting is, he, he's frustrated because he is a confronting what he thinks is an impossible task. And then what's fascinating, and we're not going to read all of it just for time, but in this, in this component, God provides 70 elders. Now, you might think, well, that's the same as the 70 elders we had before. That was administrative help. This is spiritual help. These are 70 new elders, and God says, I'm going to take 70 people. I'm going to put my spirit on them. I'm going to take of your spirit, which he doesn't have to lower anything to give to someone else, but it's manifesting. I am going to give them the same spirit that you have, and, and he's going to help them take care of that problem, his complaint. And then he tells Moses in the same, almost the same breath, and by the way, I'm going to send meat for the people. I'll give them more meat than they can eat in a month. There's going to be plenty of meat. And Moses even after he gets the, the seven, he help, he says to God, because he, he sees everything from his finite ability and not the infinite capabilities of the Creator. And so he says to God, how in the world are you going to be able to, how are we going to have this much meat? Where is it going to come from? And the Lord says unto Moses, is the Lord's hand wax short? Thou shalt see now whether my word shall come to pass unto thee or not. So I want you to recognize this meat complaint is a horrific look at God and saying he's not enough. And it's such a weighty complaint that Moses starts buckling under the pressure and he turns to God and says, I can't take this anymore. I'm displeased with these people. And God sends 70 elders. They end up prophesying. Two of them, which seems to be what Israel always does, decide not to show up. Um, and and, and <laughs> they're in the camp. It's like every time. Two guys are like, I ain't going. You know? This is very independent-minded people. They prophesy in the camp. Joshua gets jealous and says, I want him to stop. Moses says, I wish everyone would prophesy. You see his mentality coming around. But, but I want us to see something from verse 23 when he says, how is this going to be possible? Because Moses says in 21, the people among who, whom I am are 600,000 footmen. That's where we get some of our numbers. There's 600,000 men here, fighters. And thou hast said, I will give them flesh that they may eat a whole month. In other words, he said to God after God said, I'm going to feed them for a whole month. He says, oh, really? What are you going to do? 600,000 men, you're going to feed them? He says, shall the flocks and the herds be slain for them to suffice them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to suffice them? In other words, God, I don't think you can do this. You're limited to my finite ability. And then I put as a, as a question, in what ways do we question God's ability or limit it? to our own. And I want us to think a second about this. I wrote an answer down. 
In what ways do we question God's ability or limit it to our own? And I'm going to say politics is one of them. How many of us, and look, elections are important. I believe they're important. I'm for voting for the right person. I'm for voting for scriptural and biblical, the, the most aligned that we can find. They're important. But how have we limited God's salvation and care to how well the vote leans in our favor? And just think about that for a second. How linked is your impression of what God can do in a nation and in the world, and how tied is it to who gets voted in as president? And just process that a second. Because I think a lot of us are like, well, and, and I'm not saying, I'm not making it casual. I, I'm going to make sure it's important. Paul tells us that it's an important thing. But have we turned where we're limited and said to God, I'd like to see you work this out. Do we have wicked leadership in our country? Oh, we can, we can name them all almost, it feels like. There's been horrific things said. Has something horrific happened in Israel? Almost oh, definitely. Have some clowns started blaming Israel for it? Most definitely. Why? Because they're wicked, horrible people. They're still God's people. I, I you know... I'm sorry if you're a Palestinian sympathizer. I'm going to make a statement. They train their kids math by murder. So that's been proven in, in a fact. But what I'm saying is you watch our politics, and, and they've literally spun it around. Why? Because they hate God's people. And I'm the first to say that God's people, Israel, don't have it right. They, they don't worship the true God. God was clear. You worship Jesus Christ, and that's how you worship the Father. They don't worship Jesus Christ. They don't worship the true God. They're still God's people. I say that because in a horrific attack, a terrorist attack, we got people now sympathizing with terrorists because, well, you deserved it. And what's fascinating is we never said that about ourselves, right? And I bring it all up because in what ways have we limited God? And I would say our politics. We have said that if we don't get the right person in office, then God cannot do anything with our nation and with the world, and it can't function. And I would remind us that Christ said about the church that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And remember that. What are other ways that we maybe limit God's ability to our own? It is. But we're called to do it, right? We're not to presume upon God's ability. But we are his children, and we know he's working a purpose that is far greater than our own. And we see in Moses, who, by the way, is one of the meekest people on earth. That's what the Bible says about him. And he's struggling with seeing God as God. And we have lowered God to superhuman status. And when we do that, then we limit him to superhuman abilities. God's not a superhuman He's who? He's God. He's unique. There's no other like him. He is the one and only creator. And so, of course, God answers the way he does. Is it not fascinating to tell the creator God, I don't think you can pull this off? Out of nothing, he created everything, and then he's saying, I don't know if you can come up with some meat. God's probably, I don't know if he chuckles, but I just imagine him chuckling, thinking, oh, meat, you wait to see what I'm going to do. And what does he do? What I find fascinating is 70 elders come forward, they prophesy, and God 
spreads the burden for Moses. Moses is complaining. What does God do? He gives him help and shows that these people are there. Then the story turns to the complaint of the people. They're whining about what God has done, and then we see it fulfilled. God sends quail in such abundance that it's piled up three-plus feet on the ground for a day or two's journey. Now, mind you, how many days' journey were they from Kadesh Barnea? Three. And at least one and a half days' worth of walking, you could get three foot a bird. If you don't like quail, I, I share this story, and I only brag because my brother-in-law bragged to his son about this. So my brother-in-law made some chicken wings for my nephew Levi, and in the process of doing that, he shared about a time that I went to an all-you-can-eat Quaker state in Lube, and I ate 50 chicken wings in one sitting. I didn't feel well, but they lost money on me. That's all I want you to know. And so when my nephew heard this, he was amazed. And so I texted my brother-in-law back and said, though it may kill me, I'd love to prove that to him yet again. So if I die at Christmas, you know why. Um, I attempted 50 wings. Can you imagine how many wings they're getting there? I mean, just, by the way, the, the least, so not everyone went out. So the people who are gathering, it says 10 homers, and they say that that's close to 500 gallons, the least. How in the world can you get that much meat? Well, when it's piled, what's three, three plus feet high, two cubits high, for a day and a half plus walking, there's plenty of meat. And so they're getting these birds, and by the way, they are tons of birds that do come through there. God sends a wind, piles them up, and they... They get to get this meat, and then they get to dry the meat so it doesn't spoil. And then they begin to eat the meat, the ones that wanted meat. Or, and this is what's interesting, because I think, oh, man, would I have been the ones that eat? Would I have been one of the guys that ate meat? Like, well, if God's sending it, might as well eat it. Obviously, there was a bunch of people that realized the request for meat was rebellion. And that was outside the limits of what God wanted. And so a host of people aren't eating meat because it says, that the ones that wanted meat, the second their teeth touched the meat, God's anger was kindled, and he inflicted the meat eaters with a great plague. Verse 33 and 35, it says, And while the flesh was yet between their teeth. Why that wording? Well, how do you start eating meat? You open your mouth, I'm not going to depict it, and you take a bite. So in other words, before they swallow a piece of meat, while it's in their meat, it says, air. It was chewed. In other words, right just there, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague, and he called the name of that place Kibroth Hatavah, because there they buried the people that lusted. And the people journeyed from Kibroth Hatavah unto Hazaroth and abode at Hazaroth. And I'm not going to finish what I wrote. We will not get to leadership complaint tonight. But I, I want us to get a picture of this. Three feet high of birds for two days' walk. You gather 500 gallons of meat. You wanted meat. I mean, you wanted that meat. And then you dry the meat, and then you take a bite, and it hits your teeth, and God's anger comes in on this rebellion and this rejection. It said, I'm not sufficient, and you die. And the name of the place is we buried a lot of people there. We lusted, the place where we wanted something. And the number you saw in numbers one through four, that's changed. There's less people now. 
a certain portion of Israel got what they wanted and paid dearly for it. And I want us to process that as we close out tonight. Their desire, granted, paved the way for their punishment. And then I want us to see something. What does that tell us about their desire? It was wrong. I wrote, it was horrifically sinful and rebellious. It spurned God's provision. It said God was not enough. And then I put as a closing thought, which makes me wonder, are we the segment of God's people who have the craving today? Does that describe us? I'm not going to pretend that Numbers is an easy book to apply um, because every application feels like we're the worst people in the world. It really does. Like, I'm sitting here, I'm like, there's not, I don't feel like there's anything, hey, uh, yep, meat wanders out, you know. And, and here's the, the, the reality of answering that question. Do you have the craving or not? Is God enough? Or do, do we demand more than God from God? God, I want more than you. I want more than you give. I want more than you've provided. I want more than what you say in Scripture. God, I want more. And here's the interesting thing. That question, that demand, that desire negates the reality of God because nothing can be more than God. And I hope you get the weight of what they asked for when they asked for meat. They basically said to God, we want more than you. But if you can want and get more than God, then God can't be God because God is the supreme being. We spent 10 chapters understanding who God is and that His presence is in the camp. And we're one, two, three days journey out, four, five, six, whatever it is. We're not to Kadesh Barnea and we're not in Mount Sinai anymore. And at some point we tell God, yeah, I need more. More than you. And I want us to get a grip of the lesson that's there because we have to ask ourselves, is God enough or do we demand more than God from God and then recognize when we do, you're not just one of those, and I've heard people say this, it's an infuriating statement, but it's also them pinning a target on their back in, in some sense of the word. Well, yeah, some people, they're content with that, but I, you know, I have more ambition than that. You have more ambition than God? Good luck. Because I see a lot of people that died with meat in their teeth because their ambition exceeded God and what they were saying to God as they took a bite of the meat was God's not really God. See, God is the supreme being and he's the supreme desire. And so there is no way we can want more than God. And when we do, it means we don't worship God. And thus, when they took a bite of the meat, they dropped dead. Now, do we serve a gracious God and a merciful God? Oh, we do. Because we don't drop dead when we replicate this behavior. And I think I'm fair in saying this, that if we're all honest, we've seen meat cravings in our life. And I want to challenge us as we're walking into this to learn from Israel because it's a very stark lesson. This whole thing Paul talks about in Corinthians, I mean, he talks about don't be like the Israelite that perished wanting meat. In other words, don't, don't be people that ask God or pretend that God's not enough and in essence deny the existence of the true God, of who God is. 
because he is the supreme being. And wanting more than that equates to saying he does not exist. It's not that those that are content with God are the, the simpletons that are content. They're actually the people that recognize what is the goal. What is the supreme one? And the ones that don't are just chasing trinkets on the ground that are useless. And so let's be cautious how we view God and make sure we see God as God. There can be nothing better or more than Him. And don't be the meat cravers that say, I need, I need more than that. He's not enough. Let's close in a word of prayer. We'll get to the leadership complaint. If you get a chance to read chapter 12, it's fascinating. Don't miss that Miriam leads. Don't miss that Miriam's the one that gets leprosy. Don't miss Aaron yet again following and Aaron begging Moses. And don't miss that Moses' first words were to beg for his sister's health. He never defended himself. And so just see a little bit. We saw him in his worst light here. And in leadership complaint, you actually see him where God comes and defends him. And it's a whole different look um, from him. And then from 12, we're going to dive in and we probably won't finish it because I'll start this now slide of never finishing my lesson. And, and we're going to dive into people spying out the land and then watching Israel kind of collapse because of it. Let's close in a word of prayer.